Hello and welcome to Threaded Together, a podcast that stitches together home sewing and high fashion. We're your hosts. I'm Tracy. I'm Rebecca. And in today's episode, we'll be discussing couture jacket making, reflecting on one year since the course that Tracy and I met at. We'll be covering couture jacket techniques and skills and how we've applied what we learned one year ago in our makes. This is our sixth episode for Threaded Together, and we're so excited to have you. And we're thrilled to have you back listening to us again. And don't forget to find us on social media at Threaded Together Podcast or at threadedtogetherpodcast.com where you can see what we're working on and keep up with us between podcasts. Just give us a follow. Oh, the social media. You can even find us on threads. So exciting, Tracy. (laughs) Okay, so before we get into today, can we talk about the Barbie movie. I'm so (laughs) excited for it and all the outfits. (laughs) I am as well. There has been such a delightful mix of vintage fashion references and impeccable styling on even the promotional red carpet and in the movie itself, of course. It's such a work of art. I absolutely love all of the Barbie looks being brought to life on the red carpet. Do you have a favorite? Ooh, um, let's see. I'm going to pick two. Mine are a toss-up between the Vivian Westwood reinterpretation that uh, Margot Robbie wore in London, I believe, with the feathers mm-hmm. and it was like light pink and just absolutely divine. And then there was also a hot pink Versace suit look that was absolute perfection straight off of one of the vintage Barbies. And I think getting to see how the designers have reinterpreted these classic looks to me feels very much like a sneak peek into the fashion process itself. And what about you, Tracy? Which was your favorite red carpet look? So my favorite so far um, I think it has to be the solo in the spotlight scaparini mm. dress with the the oh, black from black dress with the like the gloves it's just gorgeous so fabulous that was absolutely stunning and I think that was for like the LA premiere was it not I think you could be right it's so inspiring and Tracy, do you have tickets to see it yet? And if so, what do you plan on wearing to the movie? <laughs> I plan on seeing it next weekend. Um, strangely enough, though, my husband, for some reason, he wasn't interested in going with me. Um, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going, going with a group of girlfriends. Um, I mean, I'm going to wear pink, right? You've got to wear pink, yeah. at least, I think. Um, <laughs> I did momentarily toy with the idea of making like a Barbie-inspired outfit. I was really enjoying <laughs> to the the gingham um dress and uh i was like oh that would be so fabulous and i can make that really quickly and i was having a look but i couldn't find any suitable gingham and so that's put that idea to bed which is great i think what about you do you plan on seeing it as well (laughs) i do i have tickets this weekend as well I think I bought my ticket, my husband tickets. He doesn't have a choice. So he's coming and I'm going with some girlfriends. I actually don't have that much pink, shockingly, or not that shockingly in my wardrobe. And so I I am toying with, I mean, we'll see. It's Tuesday when we're recording this. I'm seeing this on Saturday. But I have this like a rainbow check terry toweling vintage fabric that has hot pink in it. And it's all like super bright colors. And I was like, that would make the cutest little jacket and skirt. Very kind of Chanel inspired. Mm -hmm. But again, probably will not happen. (laughs) 
<laughs> Sometimes the idea is all you need, right? Definitely have to share what I wear and oh, I'd love to see what you're wearing as well, Tracy, which is exactly. half the fun of it. It's giving us an event, right? Exactly. So today we're really excited to talk about a reflection on how we've applied everything we have learned from the tailoring class that we met at. But before we get into that... Um, it would be good to talk about what you've been working on in the last month. Summer has gotten away from me a bit in terms of planned make. Surprise, surprise. The one thing I finished was I did turn a vintage crush pencil skirt that was too small into a pair of shorts by adding some fabric so I could have a little matching set to wear. So that was a spontaneous make in this past month. Mm. Um, other than that, I've been working on a Dior bar jacket inspired pattern as part of my kind of jacket making continuing learning curve. Um, and I'm afraid I've only gotten this far as the first toile, which I know you're aware of, Tracy, but it's been a very, very fun learning to be making that. And how about you, Tracy? What have you been up to? Well, I haven't really had that much sewing time as I've had a few weekends away. Um, mm. went to Oslo, which I absolutely loved. That was really lovely. Um, mm. And then summer plans in general have just eaten into my sewing time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I have made the Fabric Godmother peony dress, which um, I think, you know, I'm a massive fan of Fabric Godmother. Mm. Um, and because I think they have just the best fabric and uh, just like their dream wardrobe kits that they put together and everything. Um and this is their first pattern that they've released. Um, oh, I didn't got, know that. Yeah, it's got proper like um, vampire wife, um, vampire wife's vibes to it. Um, with like a fitted bodice and a like a midi knit waist and puff sleeves, and and then there's like another a kind of cushion for your puffed shoulder as well. And it's just it's a really um, beautiful dress. Um, yeah, loved it. Love making that. I love that vibe. I haven't even seen a picture yet, Tracy, but I can picture it in my head based on your description. That sounds fabulous. It was like a real dream to sew and absolutely beautiful, um, beautiful pattern. I should really technically <clears throat> have made a twelve because <laughs> I made a couple of alterations to the pattern, like a um, an FBA, and I would grade it between sizes, but. Um, I was just so keen to sew it up and it looks gorgeous and I want to make it in a zillion fabrics now. <laughs> I love when you find patterns like that, that you want to make in different different fabrics and be able to wear it different ways. Tracy, do you mind sharing for if somebody's newer to sewing what an FBA is? Because I think what you accomplished in the flat is kind of amazing. <laughs> um, so an FBA is a full bust adjustment so typically patterns are drafted to a dressmaker's B cup, which is a two inch difference between your high bust and your full bust. And so if you've got a difference in size to that, sometimes you have to do a bust adjustment. So either um, a full bust adjustment if you're more than two inches difference and a small bust adjustment if it, you're less than two inches difference. And obviously it depends on the pattern. Some of them you, you can get away with it, but is so impressive. Very yeah. impressed. Well, do you have anything else on the horizon for you sewing-wise? So I've got a few other summer sewing plans. I'd like to make a few more dresses and tops and things. Um, but I'm not quite sure what I'll jump into next. I'll have a little think. I, I 
love in the summer that you have the lighter evenings because you feel more energized in the evening to do some sewing um mm. so yes i still need to make a bit of a dent in my summer sewing plans but i will get there <laughs> so on to our main topic for the day so for our new listeners we met at a course last summer a week-long couture tailoring class at central st martin and the class was an intense short course over the week where we learnt the skills to make a couture jacket it was an intense week and super hot i do believe there was a heat wave (laughs) and we thought in today's episode it would be good for us to reflect on what we learned from that exactly one year following that class and how we've applied it to our makes because there were a lot of really good tips and tricks that we picked up during that session but firstly how many jackets have you actually made since the class not completed any um, <laughs> I do have one blazer that I made that I did do the welted pockets on and it isn't couture finished or lined it's actually still hanging up uh, I started that last year and then I recently made a new pattern to attempt the full jacket making process so basically the answer is none, Tracy. That's a roundabout way of saying I have not fully completed any. How about you? Well, oh, one, but not to that level. I made the Heather Blazer um, by Friday Pattern Company. I think we mm. talked about that a few, a few episodes ago. Um, but that was a really simple sew. It required no horsehair, no pad stitching, mm. no little hand sewing. It was really quite simple and quite speedy to sew up. Um, I do still plan on making some proper jackets though. I've got the all the materials and everything I need to do the closet core Jessica blazer. And I also have everything I need and, you know, except time perhaps to make the, <laughs> to make a Chanel style jacket. So given that we don't have a wealth of experience of jacket making between us, we thought it would be good to reflect on some of the tricks we learned and how we apply them to our makes. Exactly. Because even though we haven't made a ton of jackets, I know I use a lot of the tips that I learned and I know you do as well, Tracy. So why don't we kick off with first what brought us to that class, Tracy? Why were you taking that short course? So I took the class because I wanted to up my sewing game. I love how much you can learn in real life in a class amongst other people, not just from the teacher, but from the people you're studying with as well. Mm. Um, And it was a real extravagance really to take a week's holiday from work (laughs) to take a sewing class. But I I loved it. And I think definitely going forward, I, I wouldn't hesitate to spend a week's holiday on sewing again. Um, it was just mm-hmm. really, really good. Why did you take the class, Rebecca? Very similar reasons. I just started sewing. Well, I'd start, <laughs> I have less experience than you, Tracy. I just started sewing the previous December and it kind of gotten to a point where I needed to get a step up from an instruction standpoint and really level up my abilities. And the class, honestly, I think was a bit beyond where probably I should have been experience wise when I took it. Um, I think I could probably even just take that exact same class again this year and get Mm. just as much out of it, if not more. Uh, But it was a phenomenal experience and completely changed my approach to garment construction and really was my first time I've ever taken an in-person class. I also took a week off of work and it was probably the best spent summer holiday. 
I've, yeah. I've ever done. And just the amount that we learned, I was a completely different um, sewer, sewist, <laughs> um, garment maker when I left that class than I was when I walked in. So yeah. it definitely did what it was meant to. No, I agreed. And there was so much to it. You're right. It was really intense. It's the kind of class you could take again and still learn the like another layer of stuff from it. It was, there was so much to take away. Absolutely. Um, so we've used the term couture in this and anybody who's not familiar, you may have heard the term couture before and thought a number of things since it's a term that's used colloquially in a number of different ways. So we want to kind of define it for what we're meaning within this context. So couture usually means made to measure in its purest form, but we also learn in a class that it doesn't always have to be 100% handmade. The rule as it was passed on to us is in order for a garment to be considered couture, it has to be at least 60% hand sewn. And this usually means hand finishing on the seams and hems of the garment. So as a side note, <laughs> since taking this class, one of my absolute favorite Twitter accounts to follow is Dye Workwear. Um who is Derek Guy and mm. he has just such an appreciation for fine tailoring and bespoke tailoring and he gives excellent comparisons between made to measure, ready to wear, like versus bespoke and highlighting the styling and um, appreciation of pad stitching and different wools that are used in suits. Um, and it's just really, really incredible um, account to follow. One of my non-sewing friends <laughs> sent me a message recently going, do you follow this guy? He's amazing. Because um, I, th I think he just has a real um, way of telling stories and, and a really good images to back up points. And it's, it's just um, wonderful. So I don't know, like at the Oscars, he, he would... <laughs> He would say, this is who I think was the best dressed at the Oscars. And um, um, so there was, I think Bill Nighy was wearing an anthology suit. And like he was like, I think he's wearing the best suit. And then off the back of that, I just ended up down this Twitter, like internet wormhole where I learned that he was, Bill Nighy was walking down the street in Bond Street in London and saw a couple walking towards him and thought that the man was like impeccably dressed. And so approached him to say, like how marvellous he looked um, to which his girlfriend was like oh he made everything he's wearing and then it turned out that this was the founder of um, Anthology the suit that he oh, was wearing wow. to the Oscars which I just think is such a cool story um, but going back to the Twitter account and he talks about the different walls and stuff and the different techniques and the protections against different um, tweeds so for example um, Donegal tweed and how it's got how it's distinguished by its irregular flecks of colour and um, how there's there were lots of tweed weavers in Donegal, but unlike other places like Harris Tweed, um, which has protections in place, there isn't protection against Donegal Tweed. And it, it's just mm. so, so fascinating, but it tells all his stories with such passion um, that I highly recommend you follow him. <laughs> Uh, it, yeah, that's an instant follow for me, Tracy. That sounds phenomenal. <laughs> but anyway, digressing. Sorry. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so, one of my biggest takeaways from the class was that taking your time makes better pieces. I mean, it's something that I knew before, but it's a real deliberate thing in my sewing practice now. There are some projects I've spent 
weeks on just to make sure I can do it right. And the kind of things I turn around super quickly, I find myself resenting the fit or the or the finish. Do you find that too? I took away a similar mentality, Tracy. Absolutely. Um, but it was also a little bit more along the lines of the actual sewing of the garment should be where you spend the least amount of your time was I think something that we had had shared with us. Um, and what that meant for me was that all of the preparation, basting to make sure your seams are perfect, cutting, planning, fitting, ironing, all of those things are where you should be taking your time. And then the actual sitting in front of a machine to sew that one seam should be fast and easy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why a lot of designers, makers, or tailors say that they are that thing rather than saying specifically they are sewists. Since again, within kind of this approach to the garment making where you do actually take the time to do everything properly and thoughtfully, the actual sewing itself is the least important part kind of of the entire garment. Yeah. Absolutely. And in in my working life, one of the agile phrases that's often thrown (laughs) (laughs) is is to fail fast. So basically to identify that the project is going to fail early and, and, you know, pivot quickly. And I think it's a pretty good attitude to... um, like sewing, like your sewing projects or, or life in general. But um, for some of my early sewing projects, they'd be smaller projects and quicker sews. And so there'd be less of an investment of time before identifying whether something was going to be a complete failure. Mm-hmm. But I think as I get further along in my sewing journey and I want to spend longer on projects, um, it's important to think about where the failure may happen. So whether it's in the fabric or the pattern or the fit and spend more time upfront on that piece. So basically like a, a reallocation of time, which then allows you to spend more time on the project as a whole, but with the biggest kind of risk factors first. And I know that I completely contradicted myself earlier when talking about my uh, fabric godmother dress that I've just made. But, <laughs> and I think that that's something I'm still refining, but definitely more mindful of. I think that that's a consequence of the class, like slower sewing. Um, and you don't want to spend a week hand sewing for the, the garment to not fit. Absolutely. I think part of that too is just understanding the length of time it actually takes to make some of these garments. A couture tailored jacket takes four weeks by hand, mm-hmm. which is incredible. And I can relate to kind of a similar mentality using the pattern of that Dior inspired bar jacket that I've been doing this month. Cause I actually first draped and did a calico pattern and pieces and pin my darts and everything only to realize that to really achieve that shape, you need full front panels, but I never could have gotten to the point of creating that full front panel. If I hadn't cut up the pieces and darted them and now I can kind of reshape what those panels look like. But without actually taking those steps in that pattern and taking the time to think about it and think about that construction, play around with it and repattern, um, I would never have gotten to being able to actually figure out how that paneling shape should happen. So again, where we spend our time shifts and we understand the value of steps like twalling more to achieve these more 
complex ideas and a more sophisticated final product. So diving into what we actually learned in the class, one of the first things we did in the class was check and see if the fabrics of the, the wool for our jacket was on the grain. And we did this by establishing a straight line across the fabric from selvage to selvage, and then working with the the fabric as a, as a flat piece of fabric, cutting into the top edge, finding one thread that goes crossways across the whole length of the fabric and then pulling it like slowly and gently out to give a straight line across the fabric. Had you come across this technique before? You know, I've been thinking about this a lot, Tracy, since this was actually a method that we mentioned last month for knitwear hemming. Mm -hmm. Um, It was so similar about unraveling to one singular thread so that you could make sure the line was flat. Yeah. And it seemed like such a tedious step, but it goes to show the level of precision when you think about just one strand in such a finely woven fabric that is something you'll use for a suit jacket, just that level of precision that goes into a tailored garment. But it was absolutely new to me at the time. Yeah, it was definitely something that people in the class who'd studied fashion were comfortable and familiar with. But for me, it was like a brand new technique. I obviously was aware of grains and when cutting fabrics, I would do my best to ensure that it matched up. But there was a lot of work <laughs> in that process. I think that this has made me be a lot more conscious about how accurate the grain line is. And also since then, um, I've come across similar techniques on, on the draping class that I took, um, where you block the fabric. Um, and that's where you manipulate the fabric by hand and with a steamy iron to ensure that the crosswise and lengthwise grain hit each other at perfect right angles. The grain is so important when you're working with fabrics. And I just wanted to add in too that drawing one thread across an entire meter or so of fabric is very challenging. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. We all struggled with it very much at the beginning, um, (laughs) especially with a super fine wool. But I think this is something that, you know, you do sometimes for technique and aesthetic, but when you're tailoring using any sort of check or pattern, you realize just how crucial and essential this is as part of the process. And even in some of the kind of adjustment techniques we'll discuss later, finding that grain really becomes part of also finding that fit. Yeah, absolutely. So this leads us on to the next learning point, which was shaping the fabric. Um, And so shaping the fabric was achieved by shrinking or stretching the fabric. This is a step that we did in our tailoring class that absolutely changed my life. Mm -hmm. So the technique is such that after you cut out your jacket pieces in the flat, and then I checked my notes, it's once you've closed the dart in the front chest piece. So once that's already done, you then iron certain areas of the jacket in different directions to allow space for a person's body in the curves that come with it. Mm -hmm. The pattern we were using were so precise that they actually didn't fit together properly without that ironed in ease. It was actually part of the pattern. Yeah. It was so interesting because we talked all of the directional arrows onto the jacket itself and then took them to the iron and ironed in the direction of the arrows to give more room and shaping along those lines. On the front of the jacket, we ironed an arcing curve over the top of the dart towards the centre of the jacket. And we also ironed on the side directly below the arm side on that piece, pushing slightly outward and a small bit upward within that 
top of that arm shoulder area and then ever so slightly inward and down from the top curve of the neckline. And on the side panel, we ironed in the very middle of the piece in the frontwards facing part. We ironed downwards in that arced fashion and on the same part of the backwards facing side, we ironed upwards. So kind of a little swirling there. Mm. And what was really helpful as a guide in this process was that we had meticulously basted our grain lines in the center of each of our pieces, which of course helped to very easily guide kind of which side of the piece those ironing lines should be on. And on the back panel, we ironed on a curve from the middle of the back into the shoulder to give more room there. And we also ironed in opposite directions to the side panel in the same place ironing upwards and then at the bottom of the back panel we ironed from the center outward and upward (laughs) to allow for the sloping of your lower back. Lastly we curved the main portion of the sleeve which in our case of the pattern was a two-piece sleeve stretching that outer side of the main piece and then shrinking that inner curve to allow for more movement. And the ironing techniques and areas we used were to meet a standard couture jacket shape but If one was actually tailoring the jacket to a person, these same techniques could help accommodate the body without adjusting the pattern itself for minor adjustments, all part of the truly made-to-measure process. And it's a technique that you sometimes um, see in home sewing, like shaping bias tape into a curve before sewing it on, or how some trouser patterns require easing in the inside leg. But it it was incredible, really, to see how much it's required in a tailored jacket and what the impact of it is in the process. It really was. And Tracy, one other thing was I went and was looking in my books to see if our pattern pieces varied from what you see in more standard jacket pieces. And I do think they were slightly less curved in some areas to allow for that shaping that was actually done by the iron. But I can see why you get more curvature using the iron versus just cutting slightly more of a curve into the pattern piece itself. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And another shaping trick, which is about using ease stitching to ease a seam line into another. And this is um, especially true of armholes. And there's one trick with the armholes, which I think blew our minds. And (laughs) Rebecca, since then, you've completely nailed this trick. (laughs) I'm obsessed with this trick since armholes can be scary for anyone. The first part of the technique was a fairly standard one to base the top of the sleeve head without attaching anything and just gather it in ever so slightly so that you kind of pull in that ease and make it easier to fit into the armhole. Then the second part of the technique a lot of us know and use is easier to sew a sleeve on when you have the jacket inside out and the sleeve stuck into the garment like you pulled the sleeve in and sew it in that way since it uses up some of the ease. And here is the magic. So if you then take your sleeve seam, so we have your sleeve inside the inside out jacket and you grab a hold of that seam and actually roll it outwards from the armhole. So you're turning the sleeve inside out and over that seam, it naturally takes up even more ease and creates an almost perfectly flat curve. Mm. So if you're trying to match up sleeve ease, this is a great technique of rolling it one more time to get that perfectly smooth curve. And then within the concept of jacket making, it's during this step where you actually add in a sleeve headpiece 
piece in that rolled state so that when you roll it back into where it should naturally be sitting after you've sewn it, that reinforcement will be perfectly smooth along that curve at that top of the sleeve head where you had your base stitching. Mm. And Tracy, I can't tell you how many times I've run into an issue with easy distribution on a seam on an armhole where I've used this technique of just that one more time rolling it. It's a life-changing technique and it isn't in any book I've ever seen. So a note to everyone out there, save this bit for the next time you're stuck on (laughs) fitting the two pieces together. Just roll it one more time and you will be amazed at how much easing that takes up. It's it's such a good technique and I think you've described it perfectly. Um, Sleeves are always uh, tricky, I think, to get your head around, especially early in your sewing journey, which way bits go round. Just seeing that demonstrated with the extra ease um, used that way is, is just a really, really cool technique. And then another topic that we covered in the class was waxing your thread. It really was. <laughs> <laughs> so I must confess, before this class, I'd heard of the concept of waxing thread and maybe on some embroidery class I'd come across, um, but I'd used it, but I hadn't made it part of my everyday sewing practice at all. And as we were being shown how to wax the thread and told the importance of it, I distinctly remember Eves on the class saying, once you wax your thread, you'll never go back. Absolutely. That was one of our our other friends during the class. And even while we were doing research for this episode, I found our group chat and <laughs> Eves's entry into the group chat was, have you waxed your thread? So definitely, definitely a mantra that they live by. So this concept of waxing your thread was new to me as well. And I actually found it really funny because back when I used to hand stitch point shoes every night in high school, I used dental floss <laughs> because it was waxed and really easy to stitch with and nobody cared what we were using. So I love this idea. And whenever I'm basting now, I always wax my thread and iron it. Are you sold on the idea, Tracy? Yes. Yes, I am. (laughs) (laughs) Waxing the thread stops the threads from tangling and makes it easier to thread and prevents the thread from falling out the needle or protects your thread while you sew. So you wax the thread by cutting the length of thread you want to work with, running it through a lump of wax and then pressing it, I, I mean, ideally between press cloths, but I don't think we did that. And that helps set the wax And if you're doing quite a bit of hand sewing, you can prep quite a few threads at once and and it's a good use for an empty thread spool. (laughs) Oh, that is a good trick. If you aren't using the the nicest beeswax, it can sometimes leave a little bit of residue. So that's something when I am waxing my thread, I still make sure to put a pressing cloth on top and try to give it a good iron before I put it through my fabric so that you don't get any of that extra residue. Yeah. Yeah. And it helps set the wax in as well. Yeah. If only there was pre-waxed. Oh, wait, I think you can buy pre-waxed thread too. (laughs) We'll have to add a link to that. Earlier in this episode, we discussed how little time we actually spent behind the sewing machine itself during this class. But that doesn't mean we didn't spend a phenomenal amount of time sewing. It was just for a different purpose. Yeah, absolutely. The majority of our sewing time was hand sewing time. (laughs) We basted every seam, grain line and notch, and then we shaped pieces using pad stitching. And finally, we did some um, by hand finishing on the garment. Now, Rebecca, you've mentioned that you had done 
lots of hand stitching before. What was your experience like? Well, my mother was an experienced sewer and could make clothing when I was growing up, but I was never allowed to touch her machine. So I learned <laughs> some hand stitching at a young age. Uh, but where I actually got quite proficient at it was in middle and high school when I was doing ballet very seriously because I would go through point shoes on almost a weekly basis. So I was constantly sewing the elastics and ribbons on a new pair that I was going to wear. And it was a bit of a challenge um, actually sewing this because you had to sew through glue and in a, in a few layers of satin on a seam line. And you had to make sure not to interrupt the little drawstring channel of the shoe. And it would definitely break a machine needle to sew through this thick of fabric. I remember how hard it was to punch the needle through. So I was always playing around with different stitches and techniques to better hold my elastics and ribbons in place and to do the least amount of sewing possible. Um, (laughs) And I never thought I would have any use for this. But it turns out when we were relearning a lot of the specific stitches in the class, I already knew quite a few of them. So that was uh, a bit of a pleasant surprise for me. And same question for you, Tracy, what was your hand stitching experience? Well, I actively um, avoid hand stitching. I avoid um, hand sewing as much as possible. Um, yeah, before the class, that was my experience. Um, mm-hmm. Any any sewing instructions which say hand stitch it in or and give a machine option, I'd always opt <laughs> for the machine option. And this is something that I have wanted to change. And I've taken, you know, in the past a few embroidery classes and hand sewing classes to try and change <laughs> my relationship with hand sewing. <laughs> but it really, really was this class, I think, that has made the difference. Um, the amount of sewing <laughs> we did, you had to had to get over that. Um, and I think basting by hand gives you so much more control and sewing markings onto your garment as well was a, a real game changer. Um, and I'll tell you something else as well. I'd used hand, I'd used basting threads before to mark up tailor tacks um, when oh, I was cutting okay. stuff out. But a revelation <laughs> from this class was that not only does basting thread come in pink, but also in massive rolls. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I've really changed my sewing practice with hand basting and sewing Um, so there was a dress I made where I wanted loads and loads of like layers of ruffles and I basted all my lines onto it before I started sewing because I figured that um, it would all get quite chaotic when I started adding all my layers and so um, that's something that I definitely wouldn't have done before that class, I don't think. I use basting more in practice when there's something where a pin might actually disrupt the fabric itself. Mm-hmm. And I'm worried that it might shift as I'm kind of unpinning and sewing. And it's just such a, a great extra step um, to make sure everything lines up, you're joining everything the right way, et cetera, et cetera. Really yeah. so valuable. Yeah, agreed. You've got so much more control. Yes. Than you do on a machine. And pink. It's always nice. (laughs) (laughs) So the needles we were um, asked to bring to the class, we were asked to bring Sharps needles number nine long and number nine betweens. And this was, um, the between needles were an absolute revelation for me because firstly, I struggled to track them down, the betweens needles. (laughs) I'm pretty sure most of the class did, as I, I think I gave 
uh, needle away to at least half the class. Um, <laughs> but they're really wonderful needles to work with. So shops are standard sewing needles and you get them in a range of sizes from size one being the largest through to size 11, the smallest. Betweens are shorter than sharps and come in sizes from three to 11. They are smaller and shorter needles that are used in tailoring to make short invisible stitches. So according to the book, Tailoring a Classic Guide to Sewing the Perfect Jacket, these short stitches in closely spaced rows create a crisp, sharp look to the garment, whereas longer, more widely spaced stitches soften and relax the look. And in order to create such a precise detail, you want your needles to be shorter to make this easier, which is where the betweens come in. In a tailored jacket, this precision becomes especially important when you're joining something like the interfacing to the jacket fabric itself. Instead of stitching all of the way through the jacket, in which case the thread might be visible from the front, you only grab one inside thread from the weave of the jacket to create a delicate invisible join between the pieces. And I remember a great anecdote from the class because all of our stitching was <laughs> well mine <laughs> with, <laughs> mine <too. laughs> with anything but invisible. <laughs> um, <laughs> the instructor had said um, that on Savile Row they would do this stitch using a white thread, especially so that if you sewed all the way through the garment it would be visible, forcing you to be absolutely perfect with your invisible stitches. What a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I remember even with our matching thread to our garment, you could still see the tiny little stitches that we had done. Definitely very far from perfect. There's also another tip that we learned with hand sewing using shorter needles that was very valuable for me. And it was that you never want the thread to be longer than twice the length of your forearm. Otherwise, it will take you too long to pull it through the garment. Simple tips like this may seem innocuous and not like they make that much of an impact. However, when you're hand stitching the hem or pad stitching an entire horsehair chest interface, it really adds up and makes a difference. It absolutely does. And that brings us to our link to high fashion and the question of how often are these techniques actually applied in high fashion? Well, Tracy, the art of tailoring and more specifically jacket making is an integral part of high fashion. But in our world where often the art of making is separated from the art of design, you don't see it as often the same person can do both, but it has happened and there are some good modern examples. The first reference that comes to mind, of course, is Alexander McQueen, who was trained first on Savile Row before working at an Italian luxury house. And then after that, he went to Central St. Martin's to get his master's degree and became the designer that we know today. It reminds me of a quote from Pablo Picasso that perfectly summarizes the relationship, in my opinion, between tailoring and fashion, and that it's learn the rules like a pro so you can break them like an artist. <laughs> Amazing. That's something to aspire to. <laughs> Absolutely. And you can see how the art form does influence design. When I was trying to replicate this bar jacket, recently, Tracy, I ended up seeing some of the pattern pieces in it that were oddly reminiscent of an iconic 1980s Mugler rainbow jacket. So you can see how through the study of some of these techniques and the art form of tailoring itself, you can visually see how ideas develop and come to life. And it opens up the window into those thread lines of other designers throughout fashion history, which I know we love to look at. 
Yeah. So the best modern example of a designer who's currently taking the world by storm, perhaps because he has mastered the rules of tailoring, would be Tom Brown, who we discussed two episodes ago because we absolutely loved his Met Gala supersizing of a jacket. Yeah. Tom Brown actually started the fashion portion of his career. He had another career before going into fashion as well, which is super interesting. But he started his career as a tailor before moving into design and initially became famous for making a suit that was slightly shrunken in the jacket with a city length short in various hues of gray. It's also very relevant that we're discussing Tom Brown right now because on July 3rd, so just earlier this month, Tom Brown actually showed his very first ever Paris Haute Couture collection. Mm. So in his own words, Tom Brown describes what he does as, quote, starting with tailoring and conceptual ideas and then giving you the story. And I think that perfectly illustrates how fundamental the understanding of tailoring and the couture process is to the art of high fashion. Wow. I mean, his stuff is super, super cool. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's haute couture, very, you'll, you'll like it. It's very much a nod. I mean, the whole thing's a nod to tailoring, but it's, it's exciting that he's becoming so very, very popular and very of the moment. Uh, I mean, his his Met Gala pieces are definitely stand stand out weren't they they were incredible yeah absolutely and all because they were deconstructed pieces that you had to understand the tailoring yeah and that's what we like about alexander mcqueen as well is that that deconstructed exactly reconstructed pieces they're so fabulous i am super inspired tracy but before we jump into what we're working on next what ended up being your favorite part of the tailoring class last summer other than meeting all the fabulous people, of course. Well, we're obviously meeting all the fabulous people. And, um, but also I think taking my time and learning to enjoy the process of hand sewing and enjoy the time that it takes, because I know I'll get a better quality garment at the end of it. Mm. Um, and it is something that I have really taken on board in all of my sewing practices. And I think I have really benefited from it in that respect even if I don't have a jacket to show for it. <laughs> what about you, Rebecca? Again, other than meeting so many new friends, yourself included, I think my favorite part was learning those special techniques and skills that really make this an art form and not just a hobby. I remember right after the class feeling confident enough to tackle some vintage patterns that assume that you have that kind of baseline knowledge uh, that modern patterns often don't require you to have, which is totally fine. But I think it helped me to learn how and where to find the techniques that would allow me to aspire to make the garments at the quality that we see on a runway, or even to have the skills to tackle those garments in the first place. Mm -hmm. So what are you going to be working on next? What are you going to be working on (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not quite sure. I literally have just finished the peony dress. And so my sewing space is clear and ready for the next project. Um, I've definitely got a couple of dresses I want to make and a couple of shirts I want to make. But maybe I'll start with the dresses in the hope that there is still a few more Hmm. summery days to be had this summer. (laughs) And what about you, Rebecca? What are you working on next? Well, definitely in... The part of the world that I'm living in, there's plenty. You can you can have my summer. I'll <laughs> trade. 
Um, so I'm, I'm very excited about continuing my jacket, even though I thought I could do it all in a month. Obviously that got away from me. Um, but I have this idea of having this very structured collar bar inspired jacket with a a pair of shorts actually. Um, so I really want to kind of realize this vision that I have in my head, um, and hopefully I will have a completed project by our next episode. But I promise you, Trace, you'll be hearing from me a lot in the interim as, we, <laughs> as I make my way through because I have to toil. I will toil. But that's I think that's enough to commit to for the next month is working on that jacket in the short set. That sounds super. I can't wait to see the finished jacket and your progress on it as well. And thinking ahead, what's the theme for our next episode? Well, looking to autumn winter on the horizon, it's time to face head on some of the most feared construction items that are part of almost every fall piece, jacket, trousers, etc. We'll be talking about jets. Um, or welts. <laughs> bound buttons. Pockets collars and plackets so before our next episode if you have any thoughts ideas or questions for us you can always find us on social media at threaded together podcast in the meantime i'm tracy and i'm rebecca and this has been threaded together threaded together podcast (laughs) see See you next next time (laughs) looking forward to our next episode in a month make sure you give us a thumbs up on apple podcast or follow us on spotify you can find more details on what we discussed today in the show notes below or on threaded together podcast And for more behind the scenes and regular updates, you can find us on all social media channels at Threaded Together Podcast.